no matter what organization you're in, no matter whether it's like a culture of learning or what you're trying to create, you have to create trust between employees first. Hello, friends, and welcome to The Block, the Building, Learning, and Organizational Culture podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Kirby, and on today's episode, I talk to Roberta Dombrowski about how to create or encourage a culture of learning in your organization and what does mindfulness in the workplace look like. I think you'll really enjoy this episode focused on organizational culture. I'm interrupting this program to ask for your help. I'm working on my PhD for my instructional design program, and I'm looking for volunteers to be interviewed about their instructional design roles. If you have three years of experience in instructional design, have instructional designer, learning experience designer, or a similar title, and your main responsibility is to design and develop learning experiences, at least three design projects per year, then I'm looking to talk to you. If this doesn't apply to you, please feel free to share it with a friend and reach out to me over LinkedIn through the end of 2021 to help me out with my dissertation. Thanks so much in advance. Hey, Roberta, how are you? Hey, Heidi, doing well. How are you? Good, good. So let's jump right in. Why don't you introduce yourself and just tell me a little bit about your career journey and kind of how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, my name's Roberta. Um, I'm currently working as the VP of user research at a company called User Interviews. We are essentially a recruitment panel. So companies can use us to connect with potential customers, existing customers, get feedback on designs that they're doing. Um, I actually just joined the team a few months ago, but prior to this, I've been in the field of L&D for like 10 years, Um, started my career as an instructional designer, so I did learning experience design. Um, I'm kind of an on-bird in the industry, to be honest, where I've always done learning that was sold as a product or service. I've actually never worked on like an HR team before. Um, So I've been really fortunate in that and over the years just pivoted into like product management, user experience, design and research. So it's been a winding path over the years for sure. Yeah, that's awesome though. That's great. And yeah, yeah, you know, that's funny because I've I've encountered this conversation a couple of times now and I've only worked under HR in one of my roles and I've had Mm -hmm. like four different instructional design roles and yeah, it's, you know, you, that's where you typically think of L&D being housed. So when you meet people like you, it's like, oh, that doesn't have to be the way, or that doesn't have to be a thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a lot of more of like customer education roles over the past few years, which has been really cool. So like on customer success support and stuff like that, um, which I love because there's so much you can learn in a role where you're exposed to like other functions too. So yeah, absolutely. And it's nice that like, you know, I, I just heard somebody talk about this the other day that like, you know, I knew as an instructional designer, I could find a job in any industry because like the industry itself doesn't matter. It matters, you know, how we mm-hmm. apply what we know to that industry, but the amount of random things 
that you learn through your different projects and things like that. It's just like, I know more about Medicare than I should ever need to know as a person in my mid thirties. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I talk about like a lot about problem solving, like Mm -hmm. instructional designers are problem solvers and usually the type of problems that we're solving are like performance problems for our organization, helping people learn more, but that exposes us to the wide range of the Medicare. It could be customer education. It could be something else. (laughs) So yeah, I try to be broad with the problems I solve. I love it. So (laughs) you like to talk about kind of how to create a culture of learning within organizations. And you're also a mindfulness teacher. Um, Mm -hmm. So I want to touch on those two topics today for sure to kind of talk more about the organizational culture side of things. So let's say that, you know, we're talking maybe a startup who hasn't built out an L&D function yet, or Mm -hmm. somebody who has one that they don't really feel is, is kind of working or is valued. What would be kind of like your, your top tips Mm -hmm. to get kind of like, or encourage a culture of learning at an organization? Yeah, for sure. Um, It's kind of interesting because in my role, I do a lot of research. And over the years, like I worked at edX as the head of research. So with that role, I had a really interesting vantage point where I saw into enterprise companies and also smaller SMBs who were trying to create a culture of learning, right? Um, Yeah, the biggest barriers, honestly, that I see, no matter what organization you're in, no matter whether it's like a culture of learning or what you're trying to create, you have to create trust between employees first. Otherwise, like every single initiative that you create just won't happen. There has to be trust between employees, management. And then from that foundation, you can build everything else that you want to help like the team with and empower the team. Um, One of the biggest barriers that I've seen for just workplace learning is really time, honestly. It's time for the employees. It's time for the managers. Um, Even as I do research and talk to customers now, it's like always something's going on. Um, And so it's hard to carve out time for your professional development and for your employees' development. Um, So one thing that I've actually seen is companies that encourage their employees to block off time on their calendars. So like, Tuesday afternoons, you have three hours. That's your L&D time. You can use it in any way you can, you want to, which is really cool. Um, Another thing is that I've seen is like tips is really like arming managers with coaching skills. Like how can they pose reflective questions to their employees so that they're not always answering like coaching is about not always answering questions for the employees, but asking them questions so they can self-reflect and figure out what's important for them. What are they looking to learn? And then once the manager does that, they can then like support their employee, whatever they want to learn, creating that culture for themselves. Um, And then also just thinking about like different methods of learning. I think in the past, like especially before COVID, we a lot of people thought about learning. Um, like other people in the workplace would think about in-person training, yeah. and there's a lot of things that COVID accelerated that I feel really grateful for. 
And one is just like exposing other methods and channels for learning. So like mm. Slack is one thing, like you can be learning from your coworkers on Slack. Um, and just thinking about all the different, the methods and channels that you have in an organization. So, yeah. Yeah, completely. I think that as far as like the, how learning occurs, I think you're right. I think people have this very traditional mindset of like, you know, like almost like a lecture based, right? Like how did I learn when I was in K through 13, Mm -hmm. right? And oh, well, you know, I have to sit down in front of the teacher and listen to something. And it it can be something as simple as, you know, think about LinkedIn and how people use LinkedIn and they share an article or they share a thought or they share a quote. And Mm -hmm. that's learning, right? Like that you're learning from that story or that quote or that article that has statistics in it. And, you know, even that very casual method of like having, like you said, a Slack or somewhere where people can just share information that they find is, is really critical. Yeah. Yeah, I often talk to teams that I work with about like rigor of research or rigor of learning and learning is really anytime you don't know something, the act of going out and acquiring more knowledge or information. And so it could be like, you're just doing a Google search for like what to make for dinner and you come up with recipes (laughs) or it could be as rigorous as like somebody who's doing their PhD dissertation um, and doing like really control studies. And that is really different structure and mode of learning, but there's everything in between all of that. And there's so many different ways and like, things in your toolkit as you're considering building out your culture at your company. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times there are these really critical, crucial pieces that we in L&D see as truly valuable, especially in like a remote work environment, Mm -hmm. like, you know, this idea of employee engagement and that to make that possible, you have to let your employees kind of socialize and not socialize mm-hmm. just about work, right? Yep. You know, a lot of times those conversations tend towards like, okay, we'll let them socialize, but like, let's throw in some questions about like stuff related to work. And it's like, well, no, no, like that's the whole point is for people to get to know each other. And like you said, build that community of trust and be able to, you know, if I don't know you, I don't trust you right? Mm -hmm. Like just get to the absolute fundamentals of like what a trustworthy relationship is. If I don't know anything about you, I can't trust you. So, you know, a lot of employees treat the like, you know, the virtual social hours or whatever they're the, you know, typically it's like the HR team, or if you have an employee engagement person that they're trying to promote these things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times companies see those as a waste of time or, they see those workplace learning efforts as a waste of time because it's not, you know, um, you know, productive hours on the floor, if you will. And so how can you kind of, how, how do you start to change leadership's mindset about those and and prove how those things are valuable rather than a waste of time? Yeah, it's interesting. I've been really fortunate, especially in my new role to my leader has like, he gave me the time within my first few weeks, I was like, you know, I need to just take the first month and just observe what's the state of the organization before I dive in. 
And that allowed me to build trust with the team. I did everything from like observations, one-on-one interviews. And then after that time started to put together my strategy. Um, And it's, I was, I was fortunate in that I didn't need to convince him uh, for that time. And we're already like, I'm two months in and I'm already seeing the rewards of that because I'm having employees come up to me if they have a question um, and it flows into that work. Um, I think like if you do have to prove it, I mean, it's really as simple as giving examples. A lot of the time, because I'm doing research, I'll give examples, I'll give quotes, I'll give observations of what I'm seeing. Like, here's the current state of what I'm seeing in the organization. Here's some recommendations and like where I think ROI could be improved or where I think things could be improved. So it might be looking at like current engagement surveys and being like, we're seeing low engagement studies have shown like these types of things can help let's run an experiment and see if it improves it and that way it's kind of like you're taking the risk off of this big larger effort that the company might see but framing it in like this is a here's my hypothesis here's the experiment that we're going to do and it's more approachable um yeah totally so I find a lot of times that every organization is like, yeah, we have a great learning culture here and we really Mm. value learning. You know, if you ever (laughs) interview with different organizations or you ever talk to people from different organizations, Mm. but um, I've had it happen before where the more questions you ask, the more you're like, but are you really though? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what are, how, how can you tell, what is the best way to kind of tell um, maybe in an interview stage, but also like as you're trying to work and lead within an organization, mm-hmm. whether they actually value learning in a learning culture or if they're just kind of like paying lip service to that. Yeah, it's an interesting question because um, it gets into perception of like how people think that they're acting versus actual behaviors, yeah. which is what I, d- I dig into a lot of that when I talk to our own customers. and. I actually had a personal experience where in a previous organization, I joined the team, I signed on, they said they valued learning. And then they told me that I couldn't do outside like thought leadership. And I'm like, there's a conflict going on where we're saying one thing and then our behaviors are saying something else. Um, Even when I'm in like interview processes with people, I'll ask them more behavior-based questions. So I'll say things like, tell me about a time when an employee has like worked on their own learning or how do you currently encourage your employees like to continue their professional development? What rituals, behaviors do you have inside of your organization? Cause that gets more into like the habits and behaviors that's going on rather than just the talk. Cause a lot of companies these days will say like, we have a company value of ongoing learning. And it's like, what does that actually mean? So like probing, poking man, like a little bit more. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Sometimes they mean like, (laughs) sometimes they mean like ongoing learning as in you're going to do like five people's jobs in the time that you're here and you're going to have to learn all those different jobs. You know, it's not necessarily like of benefit to you professionally Mm -hmm. when you're learning those things. But I think you raise a really interesting point that, I'm always telling people that I talk to who are in like the job interview process. And that's 
this very much like an interview being a two way street. Like mm-hmm. you mentioned asking a behavioral based question as a candidate in an interview, mm-hmm. which I don't think many people probably think to do yeah. or think of because they think that like, oh no, I'm supposed to be the one to answer. And the questions that I ask should be like very shallow, right? But mm-hmm. that's not really the case. Like you really need to dig in and get a good knowledge of the organization or of the culture in order to find out. And and one of the things that I often ask in kind of like the initial screening interview where you're really not going to get too far down into the weeds, right? You're not Mm going to get into those level of questions. Something that I always ask is, um, you know, how has the company helped you develop professionally as a recruiter, um, you know, within the last year or so? And if the answer is like, oh, um, well, um, you know, I, um, you know, sometimes there's like hemming and hawing that happens and you're like, oh, so they're not developing you Mm -hmm. or, you know, other things like, oh, I was allowed to go and, you know, join SHRM or, you know, whatever, like join an organization, take classes, go to these webinars. They paid for me to go to this conference and, you know, that's how you can kind of tell just even on that very like brief, short phone screen interview, yeah. you can get a good idea just from the very beginning of like, is this a place that really actually values learning? Yeah. And it's so important to like, there's so many dynamics, obviously with interviewing, um, like, especially with the pandemic, some people were out of work and they were just looking for things. And there might be a feeling of like, how can I ask these questions? I'm in this position where I need this role. But at the end of the day, you're evaluating the employer just as much as they're evaluating you. And Something that's been really nice now is that it's turning turning into an employee's job market, and it there's is. so many opportunities. We get to choose what what fits for us. What's what are we looking for? And so I encourage everyone to take the time to do that. I have probably because I'm a researcher in, in my full time role. Yeah, I had like a rubric really that I use to look when I'm evaluating and questions that align with it. Um, and it ended up benefiting me really well where I found this amazing role and I'm very happy. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause I think sometimes you get into like the, you, you know, candidates and I've talked to a lot of people who are kind of in this boat, they get into like the point of desperation where they're like, I am so desperate to get out of my current job that I just want something, Mm -hmm. but they're just trading like a bad situation for another bad situation because they just take the first thing that comes along instead of being a little bit more intentional and having like you know like you said a rubric like that's great (laughs) that's a great way to do it because so many recruiters and so many hiring managers are using a rubric to evaluate you why not do the same thing right yeah yeah for sure I had some students I teach um I'm an adjunct at Boise State and I had a student actually who was a um, K through 12 educator. And with COVID, she just wanted to move into workplace learning now. And so I did a lot of coaching on take the time, figure out, you can have like an intermediate job for the time being, but really take the time to figure out whether the organization meets your needs or not. Um, So yeah, definitely can understand. Okay, so I want to switch gears and talk about mindfulness now, 
because mm-hmm. mindfulness is something that I think has gotten number one, great exposure since COVID, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's been really great. And I've been talking to a ton of different people in my life about mindfulness and specifically about meditation and, you know, just, just different ways that we can incorporate mindfulness. But my first question is, what does mindfulness look like in the workplace? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, so I'm going to take a step back first and say mindfulness in general. So my definition of mindfulness is just being aware and noticing. So being present, noticing, and you can't do that 24%, like 24-7. Yeah. You can't do it yeah. all the time, but just feeling whether it's like being present in your body, sensations, thoughts, and just noticing, not judging, trying to change anything. And so what that means in the workplace is the same thing. It's just noticing being present, whether it is I'm in a meeting and my schedule has been really packed. And so first minute of a meeting, oh, I notice like my shoulders are clenched. My chest might be tight because I'm stressed out. Noticing that, feeling that feeling, not trying to suppress it, but just being there and letting it hang and like kind of getting curious and being like, huh, that's interesting. I feel a little stressed out right now. Yeah. <laughs> Why might that be? Kind of having a conversation with yourself um, as you move throughout the day. So, yeah. I like it. Yeah. Because, you know, I think of, you mentioned meetings, you know, you often find yourself especially if you're not actively involved in a conversation during a meeting, right? Mm-hmm. You find yourself like looking out the window or checking your phone or whatever. And like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's very interesting because I've caught myself a few times where I'm like, okay, no, I need to treat meetings and conversations in work like I treat much like, you know, this podcast recording. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be checking my phone while I'm talking to you for my podcast, right? I'm yeah. like fully focused fully locked in. Anything else could be going on in the world right now, but I don't care because I'm recording this podcast and it's something I'm passionate about. Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm trying to bring that same level of like focus and not being distracted to Mm -hmm. like work meetings as well. It's interesting because a lot of the time, um, when people think of mindfulness in the workplace, the way that it's positioned a lot is around focus and productivity. And I try not to lead with that when I do like mindfulness sessions. It is definitely, that's an outcome that you can get to, but that's not what I try to lead with or like a focus. If it comes, it comes. Yes. But, but it is the remaining present and noticing like, even as we're talking right now, what is Heidi's tone like? What's her yeah. her presence? If I'm in a coaching session too with people, the way I bring in mindfulness is just how how is this person like? What's their their energy like? Are they in a state to have this conversation or receive feedback as we're talking yeah. and being present? Um, I think about like cognitive load of people that I'm mm-hmm. speaking with and. It, that's one way that I incorporate like the mindfulness into the workplace too. Um, I do, I do another way personally that I do incorporate it is like noticing what time of day is best for me. What mm-hmm. time of day am I most energized? 
And I do yeah. take advantage of that. Like I know mornings are best for me. I block out my time. Um, and that came as a result of the noticing, um, yeah. which has been helpful. Yeah. Totally. No, I was, I was actually just talking with one of my team members about this yesterday about how, you know, a lot of companies during and post COVID are kind of going mm-hmm. to this like really, truly flexible workplace model. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of happened on accident, right? Because you've had this like whole idea of remote work that's come about and with the remote work has come, okay, well now I don't just have to hire the best, you know, software developers in Silicon Valley. Now mm-hmm. I can hire this 20 year old guy that's living on his parents' farm in Boise, Idaho, who has all these skills and talents, but like he's not in this geographic location. But uh oh, here's the problem is that we don't work at the same hours. Mm-hmm. We're not in the same time zone. And so when you have a more global based organization and you're working with people from other countries, Now you don't have that like locked in eight to five. So you can Mm -hmm. really, and a lot of companies are embracing this, like work when you're energized. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a super important message. And I think that that's going to be so critical for organizations with keeping up with productivity, especially as people are just going through like this unprecedented, like mental and emotional toll right? Mm -hmm. Is, well, then let people work when they're, when they're energized, because that is, you know, just noticing, you know, what I just said about, I love my podcast. I love recording it. That's why it's so easy for me Mm -hmm. to be locked in and focused on it. Right. So if I pick a time of day where I, you know, enjoy working and feel good about it, feel energized, then, you know, I'm setting myself up for success. Yeah, and I I feel really fortunate. The company I work at is fully remote. It's always been fully remote pre-COVID. And I learned over the years, like my grad program was fully remote too. They're like asynchronous. And I love working that way. And there's habits that I learned in that program that I can now incorporate to the workplace. And there is a level of the self-awareness and the mindfulness that people have had to learn over the past year with COVID of adapting from that synchronous in-person work environment to now being fully remote. And I think people are still figuring it out too of, do I, do I want to continue this? Do I want to switch to hybrid? What's the time for me? Um, And I think it's important for leaders and organizations to be flexible and, I'm glad we're seeing the benefits of it currently and there's more openness to it. So, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that kind of this more people centered approach Mm -hmm. is only going to prove to be super beneficial, kind of like how the L and D field has over time started focusing more and more on the learner and Mm -hmm. how much that's been beneficial and helped, you know, L and D functions to our, I would argue that it's, that's what is making them so relevant in the workplace nowadays, mm-hmm. you know, is that that focus on the learner instead of on the the end product or the outcome, right? And mm-hmm. so, but one thing about mindfulness, and this specifically applies to me in terms of like meditation, mm-hmm. is, you know, I have been working for like the last year with a nutritional coach. 
Um, mm-hmm. I've been trying to avoid the pitfalls of COVID and being stuck in my house and like, you know, eating all the junk food and watching TV. So I've been working with this really great nutritional coach and, um, you know, she challenged me to meditate and I, you know, have been a self-proclaimed terrible at meditation person. Mm. And I've had to be corrected by like a few people who are like, no, no one's terrible at meditation. You're just Mm. approaching it wrong. Like you're just, Mm. you have this idea in your head that meditation is going into a room and having perfect silence and sitting there and closing your eyes and having a perfect, you know, environment to do this in. And that's not really what it's all about. Like Mm. it can happen anywhere. just like mindfulness. So what would you say are kind of some of the common misconceptions about mindfulness that might make people think like this doesn't belong in the workplace? Yeah, I think um, definitely one misconception is I'm terrible at mindfulness, what you just said. <laughs> there is yeah. no mindfulness is, again, being that present awareness noticing. There is no one way or right way. It's just being there's nothing to change. And so there's no one right way to do it. So that's one of the the first misconceptions that there's a right and wrong way. Um, I think with that, there is many ways to do it in the workplace. There's things like incorporating a mindful minute at the beginning of a meeting or a mindful 30 seconds where you just sit and you take in the presence of being with your team Um, it changes the whole energy of the meeting. It changes just arriving. It's giving your space to arrive. Um, It could look like meditating could be walking. It could be, I go outside sometimes in the garden and just like feel my feet in the grass and just walk and I'm being present. That's a form of meditation. Um, It could be like stretches in between getting up from my desk and stretching and just being present with my body. Um, That's usually not what people's mental model or just like what pops into mind when they think about meditation or mindfulness. But those are all forms of it that I think isn't necessarily thought about, um, especially in the workplace. Like it could be blocking off your calendar um, for a certain period of time and you're just noticing your time in the day if that's what's most productive for you. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I think another misconception is that it has to be like, that you have to be like a spiritual person Mm -hmm. to be able to do it. And you know, you, that's, that's not a requirement at all, right? Like you can Mm -hmm. be like, the most, um, you know, scientific, theoretical, you know, analytical mind and still be able to appreciate on a physiological level what it does Mm -hmm. for the brain, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've seen people from all walks of life do mindfulness practices. You don't have to be a certain age. You don't have to be. I know like with yoga too, people will say, I can't do stretches like I have back pain. I have back pain. Like I have chronic illness. People can do it no matter what your background is. And I think another misconception too is around performance. Like Mm -hmm. when people talk about workplace mindfulness, a lot of the times it's based off of performance. Um, There are like a lot of data and scientific evidence that backs it up, but I try to, again, not lead with that. Um, Yeah. When I'm speaking with people. So, yeah. 
I always say it's worth trying as an experiment. Absolutely. Yeah. Because that's how I kind of started dabbling in it and then thought I was terrible at it and then had to reframe my perception. And I feel like I'm now I'm now getting better. (laughs) Mm. I know that that's not really (laughs) the thing. You know, there is no getting better. But I Mm. feel like I'm able to better, you know, channel my energy and able to better, you know, take those moments to kind of shut my mind off and only Mm. observe what's in front of me, right? Yeah, and I think um, especially as we're working remotely too, it could be like one of the mindfulness exercises that I do every single day and I'm horrible at it and I say that (laughs) is brushing my teeth because I've always had this habit growing up where I brush my teeth and I try to do other things. I like walk into the other room and I'm like moving things around. So one thing I do is just try to be present, fully present while I'm doing that. Or like even when I'm cooking, like dinner, just being fully present of like, okay, I'm stirring the pot right now. I, I, what is my mind thinking of when I'm doing this? Um, Or even answering emails at work is like, it's so easy to like open Slack, open your email, be jumping between things, but like, okay, I'm going to focus on this right now for two minutes, give it my attention and then move to something else. Um, Right. Like how many times working from home do you like absently, absentmindedly walk to your fridge or like walk to go get something to eat. And you're still thinking about what you've just walked away from at your computer Mm -hmm. instead of like, and then before you know it, you're like, wait, I don't want to eat this or put this on, you know, why am I putting this cereal into, you know, on a plate? Like, you know, you just, you realize that like, oh my gosh, I'm totally disconnected from what it is I'm trying to do right now. And so Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. finding those little moments and finding those, those places is a really good start. Yeah. And being kind with yourself too, because it's all an experience. It's all learning. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my last question for you is what is one book, video, article, course, movie, whatever piece of media that you would suggest to somebody who wants to make a bigger impact on the learning culture at their organization? Yeah. One thing that I've been working with our product and UX teams at user interviews on is, um, There is a products coach called Teresa Torres, and she has this book called Continuous Discovery Habits. And it's really focused, the core audience is really like product managers, but I actually think it applies outside. And it's how do you get into the habit of like continuously learning? Um, And she talks about habits you can take in your organization. How do you share what you're learning insights? how do you base experiences based on outcomes rather than just like process? We have to do this because we're in this process. And I think um, I really recommend it to learning, learning practitioners as well. Um, Cause I've grown a lot by learning from other functions like product and user experience. It's made me a better learning practitioner. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I definitely recommend that. Awesome. Well, we'll share the link to that and the links to get connected with you in the show notes. But thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for joining me on the blog. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and review us on your favorite podcast platform. 
I hope you'll tune in again soon.